0: that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking.
1: So much of the travel story is about what the traveler sees where she goes, what's new and strange and marvelous, but the traveler is herself strange and marvelous to the people that she meets, someone who changes shape with every new place that she goes. It's time to eat the dogs, I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Joyce Ashentan Tang talks about her experiences as a traveler and a poet, from her home in Cameroon to her studies in Great Britain and later in the United States. Ashentan Tang is a professor of English at Hilliard College here at the University of Hartford. She is the author of Beautiful Fire, published this year with Spears Media Press. Dr. Joyce Ashentan Tang, thank you so much for talking with me today.
2: Thank you. My pleasure.
1: So your poetry that you've written about in a number of books, it covers so many subjects. You talk about love and grief and incidents in domestic life. But through all of it, to me, comes the voice of the traveler. Could you talk a little bit about your first memories of travel when you lived in Cameroon?
2: I would uh, say that... My first recollections of who I was I came in a small town called Kumba,
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, where I was born and where I lived. Uh, my first, what first four years of my my life, or stretching to uh, five years, and when I came into being—that's when I realized that I'm on this earth, and here I did not have my parents around. My Parents were studying in England. And so from that young age, I started traveling to this strange place that I did not know because I was told that my father was in in London and and everything Western used to be attributed to me because my father, my parents are in London. So if I had new clothes, they came from London. I got to learn the word telex very early <laughs> because my aunt used to receive a yeah. te- telex. And so that is how I started I, I started traveling. And I was So
1: you were going to London or No,
2: did... I was not. In yeah. my imagination. Yeah, yeah. So in my imagination. And um I recall a man came. Later I got to know that was my dad when I was four. He visited for the first time. Wow. And, uh, he carried me on his lap and asked me, where's your dad? And I said, London. I didn't know he was, uh, he was the one. And then when my mother returned, that was, if I remember correctly, I think that was, uh, 1971 or mm. 72. I was the only child that went to the airport and I was seeing my mother for the first time. And I was just, I remember, her legs were looking all dusty. Now I I came to learn that she was wearing
0: pantyhose.
2: <laughs> 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 pantyhose. And she brought a lot of toys for me. Mm. I had uh, plastic building blocks. And so again, I had been traveling in my imagination. But when she returned, now that journey became a little bit concretized because she brought a lot of toys. I had the London Deca bus. You know yeah. that, uh, that, and I. She brought Mother Goose uh, rhymes books, so I have this world, which later on I got to know is the world of uh, a child growing up in the UK, growing yeah. up in the so. So that is, I would say that is the. I traveled within Cameroon with my aunt, who used to take me because each time she had to go somewhere, she took me along, and so I did lo- local travels that I remember faintly. But because of my parents, the mega trip was in my head yeah. to the UK.
1: And then you followed them to the United Kingdom, or at least later for your graduate work. You did uh, you did your college yes. degree in yes, Cameroon and then your yes, graduate in, in Cameron.
2: work. Yes, in Cameroon. So I, from Kumba, of course, my parents eventually settled in a town called Boya. Mm. And I lived with them there for, what, for 10 years that's why that's one of my poems i say when i fall in love i talk about boya because mm-hmm. although i'm not uh, i'm not an indigenous of boya but that is my childhood uh, place and then after boya i stayed in bamenda which is another region of cameroon uh, it is a northwest region and as you know the southwest region and northwest region make up the english speaking sections uh-huh. and which makes me one of Few Cameroon oh, English-speaking Cameroonians who is really used to both regions, mm-hmm. and so I I never fall prey to the divide and rule that they want to say the Southwest and the Northwest are not are not together. And then I took a leap and went to Yaoundé for graduate studies, which is the French-speaking section of Cameroon. And um, what is not very clear from what I'm speaking is that with each crossing into each region, yeah. I'm crossing. Over bridges of stereotypes, and this is just within Cameroon. Yeah. So, southwest, going to Bamenda in the northwest, I'm going to the Grassfield region. There are stereotypes about uh, that uh, area, and my going there made me used to the people from there. So, there's always this southwest-northwest divide. You won't find me. In that game, mm-hmm. because I have grown in both places. I have mutual respect. I am not distrusting of them. Then, of course, crossing to Yaoundé is crossing to the Francophone majority, where, for the first time, my identity really took a hit because I had grown up with Cameroon as a nation state. And later on, I looked back and I think it's, um is it Anderson that says the nation is an... It's an imagined state. Because That's right. Yes. Yeah. So what, what I, I thought Cameroon was came under serious attack because I grew up thinking it's one nation. We are united. I grew up during the favor of uh, nationalism. Mm-hmm. I'm born in 1966. So I grew up with that favor of even independence. And then Cameroon became united in United Republic of Cameroon after the federal state in 1972. So I was a child of the unification. I was just about. Uh, under uh, 10 years old when that happened. So I was very excited. And when I reached Yaoundé and realized that I was a minority, that English was treated as a foreign language, yeah, that I couldn't speak English in the...
1: Public square. In the public yeah.
2: square, in the taxi. As soon as I started speaking even French, they can get from my accent that I'm anglophone, and I become a subject of uh, ridicule. And so you felt
1: that I in felt Yaoundé. that in, like,
2: in Yaoundé it was very clear. They made jokes of us, of our French, even if we spoke it well. One of the characteristic uh, uh, humour is uh, "Anglo too, mem, oui, je mem." It means "Anglo, do you love me?" Yes, I love me to yeah. provoke <laughs> <laughs> that we did not know how to speak mm. uh, speak French. And then another aspect of history also came into play. English speaking Cameroon used to be ruled by Britain as part of Nigeria, part of the eastern yeah. house in Nigeria. And so now we were called Biafrans mm. because the east tried to break away. So in in Yaoundé, I learned another label. I was uh, a Biafranly friend. And um, my sense of self started suffering, hmm. my sense of identity. And fortunately for me, I was in the English department where... I was taught by English speakers for the most part. But for English-speaking Cameroonians who went to the sciences, the professor taught in the language, in his chosen language, huh. and majority of the professors were Francophones. So you had students in law, geography, science. They came after uh seven years in secondary and high school. Suddenly... Over 80% of their lectures were in French. Yeah. And they could barely understand it to that level. A lot of them failed. If you failed, uh, I think, three times, you were dismissed from the university. It was the only university that we had. So many students dropped out. And um, it was painful to see. Fortunately, in my household, I'm the only one who went to the University of Yaoundé because... I was going to the English department. All of my siblings studied out of Cameroon because of that, because they were science students.
1: Wow. Yes.
2: Yeah, so, so. <laughs> and,
1: and then you left as well for to pursue for graduate studies.
2: studies. <laughs> and I went to the UK.
1: And what was what was it like for you? I mean, that must have also been a kind of a, a radical shift. De-
2: def- definitely. But interestingly, like I said, okay, I had traveled through my parents' uh, journey to England, in my mind. And when they came, my uh, father studied in Sussex, uh, London, Exeter also, my mom in London. So, and then through her, she did a lot of, uh, she did nutrition, education, and she worked in a hotel, Strand Strandpolis Hotel, for a number of years. So we, I had traveled to the UK through their stories, through her utensils and stuff. And there it was now, in my own right, it was it's one thing traveling in your mind it's another thing actually being there in person but in 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 a way it was like visiting a place that i had known mm-hmm. so i saw certain things the phone booth i so i i could smile at things that my uh, parents had talked about and i could see them in my own uh, in my own right but in terms of identity when i got to Will's, what I did not know is that from Cameroon, I saw the UK as one entity. Yeah. In fact, I used to have letters written to me that they would say Wales, England. <laughs> because <laughs> a lot of my friends and family didn't have the concept yeah. of it, it was England. They didn't know the UK with Wales and Ireland, you know, so they would put all the, my address. And then add England <laughs> <laughs> underneath. And so I went to Wales and discovered something else. I remember once I was complaining about colonial uh, colonialism and um, talking. And then this Welsh, so I said, Joyce... I think we've, we went, went through the same thing. Like, what are you talking about? Oh, we were, we were being oppressed too. And then the Irish. <laughs> <laughs> and then the Scottish. In fact, uh, there's this good uh, joke that one of my Scottish friends uh, told me about uh, when God was creating Scotland. That uh, he got into Gabriel to show the Scottish what he had in store for them. And this beautiful landscape. And it's showing and they're wondering. This is too nice. This is perfect, you know. And then <laughs> he says, "But God, why are you giving all this wonderful thing?" Where's the catch? Says, "Wait until you see the neighbors I give you." <laughs> you know. And then the Welsh had this postcard. It's like keep worlds clean, throw your litter in England. <laughs> so, so it it was my first introduction to identity politics yeah. in, the, in in the UK, and uh, for the first time. I could align myself with a white person, Mm. again, in terms of we're all oppressed, and not surprisingly, my close friends in uh, during my days at the university were either Welsh, (laughs) Scottish, or Irish, you know, because there was that shared thread that we had a common oppressor, and that's something that I would never have known from Cameroon, Mm. but then. Because of what what was I studying at this time? Library and information science. So, which led me to again another uh, solidifying who I was, my sense of self. Because because of uh, my studies, I became very familiar with reference books, and each time I'll rush to see to look for Cameroon, the way Cameroon was represented, and that's when I became sadly aware that. The marginalisation I had felt in Yaoundé, as an anglophone, was actually replicated in the way Cameroon is represented in the global imagination. Mm. So,
1: in terms of language, in terms of the language, yeah. the way
2: whenever Cameroon is presented was presented as a French country. Mm-hmm. So the English speaking section was erased. In fact, it became even clearer when I saw this uh, book that was. Uh, was put together... Now I can... Is it Jans? I can't remember the the editor. But he was trying to do a reference text of uh, literatures from Africa. And he structured the book by country. And now he had a problem because he had done some work in Anglophone Cameroon. So how was he going to put Anglophone Cameroon literature? Because he was going via nation states. Mm -hmm. And and this was supposed to be Anglophone African literature. Cameroon, Anglophone Cameroon is not a, yeah. a, a, a state. So you had Ghana, you had Kenya, you had Uganda, and guess what he did, which was good because we had some visibility, but it was painful. He put Cameroon as an appendix, Anglophone Cameroon literature as an appendix on the Nigerian literature.
1: Wow. Yeah.
2: Because that's the only way. So he, he did a little history to, you know, they were used to be part of Nigeria. But we could not get a section on our own because it's Anglophone. He's trying to put Anglophone Cameroon literature and he was not putting it by region. He was doing it by, via the Anglophone African countries. Mm. And so that is when I became aware that, wow, I'm not really represented. And, um, that sense of self that was already suffering in Cameroon became even acute for mm. me out there. And I, it became a crusade for me that I need to make my part of the world known. I need to speak for myself. I need to take my voice to, to places. And I, when i came to write uh, my phd dissertation that played a role in my topic because
1: which you pursued at uh, the in new york city in new york
2: city and that is very interesting because okay after wells i went back to cameroon i went back to cameroon spent a few years i went back 91 and i came to the us 94 and
1: was that your first trip to the states
2: no, my first trip, interestingly, was in 1987. I came as a representative, a youth representative from Cameroon. I was first year student at the university at the time. And there was a six-week program here for young artists. And I represented Cameroon as an actress. And I came here. And that was interesting to me because that was the first time I got to live in close proximity with African-Americans. They were actually representatives from the Caribbean and Africa and Mexico. And each time we went somewhere, they made sure that you had one African, at least a Caribbean or African-American and a Mexican to share, share space. So it was my first time to get to know I traveled to England. I met students from different parts of the world. But America was a new thing for me. And I had done African-American literature, but that was the first time to really interact with African, African-Americans. African But that short stay, I didn't really see much mm-hmm. in terms of identity. I was privileged during that visit. I The places I got in, I don't think I... I've even entered some of those places since I got back <laughs> here. I was fortunate. I even had uh, lectures from O.C. Davis.
1: Oh, wow. Yes, yeah. and
2: I got to know later how big it, it uh, he, he was. Went to the White House, went to Boblo Island. We were international guests representing our yeah. countries. So then I came back in 94. And when I came back in 94, I was now older, and I was here to stay. It's a different thing to be a visitor and stay and enter racism. That is when I my identity got redefined. Yeah, because before now, interestingly, when I was in the UK, I think I was sheltered by the student life, you know. So I I can't think of any racial encounter. I can't, because I was a student and a student with a mind to go back, I was framed that way. Yeah. So I saw everything in that prism. I'm just a visitor here. I'm just studying here and I'm going, I'm going back. And, but when I came to the U.S. to stay and live here, I started n- noticing the way I was defined. That is the, f- that is when I became black.
1: Mm. Yeah, I was thinking, actually, as I read your poems, that some of your experience reminds me a little bit of um, the, the Harvard historian, uh, Henry Louis Gates, has this uh, documentary, I think it came out about six or seven years ago, on being black in Latin America, and some of the um, interviews that he does are really, really interesting about, it, it's exactly what you just said, this this moment when a person feels they've become something else, and uh, so could you talk a, a bit about that?
2: Yes. So I, I was surprised. You know, I've already dealt with the level of being a minority as an Anglophone Cameroonian. And then I enter this space and I realize that I'm also another minority here and I'm black. My blackness is not something that had defined me. It had not defined me, and they even had another nice uh, name for it—colored. Mm. You know, I was colored. Whatever I didn't. What? what does? Uh, what does that mean? And um, it was very interesting because when I had to fill the form, I was forced into being an African American. Huh. Uh, you know, you I, weren't given any other. I wasn't given an option. And each time I'm, should I? When they say other, should I say Cameroon? American, but Cameroon does not allow dual citizenship. <laughs> so Cameroon would not recognize that. What is Cameroon American? They don't recognize that. And African American, um, that's not, that's not me. I, that appellation came about because it is, it encompasses Africa, but I know exactly where I'm from. So you sign that and you realize that, okay, that is who you're supposed to be here. But what does that entail? And then within the black community, there are these spaces, your continental African, your Caribbean, your African American, and each group seems to guard that jealously. Mm. And yet outside, we are all lumped together. And then within, this push and pull, there are people who think we should be one. There are other people who look at this group as being, Oh, I'm better than you. I'm better than that. And I, in order to not to get my identity further fragmented, I had to quickly come to a place where I could be whole with myself. And this is what I uh, came, came up with. I, I decided I'm African. I'm black. And when it comes to African-Americans and Caribbeans who are black, I relate to them in a very emotional way. Mm. I, And this is what I tell a lot of my young Africans that I talk to. I tell them, the way I look at them is, I go back to the slavery times. I think of those who came here. I want to imagine that when they got here, after that long trip... Not knowing where they are, they must have hoped and prayed and dreamt that their relatives would find them. Yeah. They must have wondered, you know, some died hmm. without wondering whether the people, not some, all of them <laughs> must have died wondering, you know, whether their families ever found out what happened to them. And so I decided to look at myself like one of those relatives who has come. And I'm not going to get pulled into any games about who is better than who, who is not. There are Africans who come here and they don't know the history. So they look at some African-Americans and say, oh, they're lazy. They're lazy. Why can't they, they have all this? Why can't they better themselves? You don't know this story. History disenfranchised them. And some of that is still affecting them today. A lot of Africans who come here, they come here from middle-class homes. Um, they come here with a sense of purpose. Yes, they've had colonialism. It's not the same thing. And so, so I come to that with understanding. And then you have African-Americans who, because of the history, because of the brainwashing, they look at Africans and say, oh, they're not civilized. Oh, they speak with an accent. Oh, they're inferior. I forgive their ignorance. I'm not going to be drawn yeah. into that. And, um, um uh, what's your, Baldwin? When James Baldwin met, um, uh, Chinua Achebe for the first time in the 70s, they met at the African Literature Association conference. Baldwin said, We have been separated for 400 years. The plan was that we should never meet, <laughs> <laughs> but we have met. Yeah. And, um, and that's the way I look at it. And interestingly, when Baldwin died, he left his briefcase for Chinua Achebe, Hmm. you know. And so that is the way I look at it. These divisions in the black, uh, in the, amongst blacks, it's, it's a divide and rule. And so I embrace that identity, uh, on paper, African American, if that's what they say I am. When it comes to the Africa, I know exactly, uh, who I am, what I am, and um, and it was very interesting. And at the first few years here, when I went back to Cameroon, I was conflicted about my minority status there. I'm <laughs> like, wait a minute. I tried to educate them. I'm like, do you know that we belong to a bigger minority called Blacks? <laughs> you know, we're here fighting with this one here. <laughs> There's this other one there that we're dealing with. And at some point, I had wanted to just embrace this black minority that its fluid doesn't put me in any particular group. Yeah. For some time, I was this nameless black person in America. And then after a while, I'm like, no, I'm going to be black from Cameroon. And
1: <laughs> Do you feel um, you work with a lot of different students, a lot of students of color. Do you feel that they also... Identify you differently than an African American, or it's it's a big generalization. But do you have any thoughts about that?
2: Yes, yes. I, um, the one thing, well, one thing that I've done is that I have tried not to keep them in a gray area as to where I belong. So day one of my introduction, they know I'm originally from Cameroon, so they know I am African, but for my Caucasian students. That doesn't stop them from thinking I'm African American. Mm-hmm. Okay, but for the black students, whether for, whether African Americans or Caribbean or African, they know exactly
1: the distinction. The, the, that the, you're the, the, the distinction
2: yeah. that I'm making, and because I know also what stereotypes they bring into that, even though they are black, from the Caribbean, from African American, from Africa, I I take upon myself. To, as part of their learning in that class, that by the time they're done, they may be unified in their thinking the way I have unified mine. Uh, Because it's a big thing, these divisions between the black, and sometimes people don't want us to talk about it. It's almost like, let's keep it in house, (laughs) let's keep it in house. But it's something that I want my, at the end of the day, they all have the same fears, the same, uh, problems, but because I can, I'm, they're all distinct and they come to the table with different fears and aspirations because of that, uh, color. They're lucky to have me who is aware of that. Mm-hmm. So if we are having, let's say office hours and stuff, sometimes they bring, some of these things up. Either it's my African students who are using a name that I think it's an abbreviation and I talk to them about it and now because they see Ashun Tantang they can now confess to me that my name was longer than that. <laughs> but <laughs> but I cut it short. But the day you asked us to say names I said that the name you heard me say it's the first time I'm saying that. But they said it to me because they were now confident
1: yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: uh, to to say it. And then when I come Uh, with empathy to the African-American history, to the problems being faced, then I see African-Americans confessing one or two things to me. And uh, now they're having more regard for the ancestral land, you know. So it's not something that they want to hide because they think it brings them down, you know. So it's... um. It's a very uh, interesting place to to inhabit. For example, I came to the U.S. to learn about something like Kwanzaa, okay? (laughs) It becomes, so what is my relationship to that? Should I say that this is some bullshit? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I'm from the continent. I don't know about Kwanzaa. I don't know what that means. But when I read about it, when I understand how it came about, then I realized that within the setup in America, in, in America, it became important for yeah. some of these rituals to be created. And so there's a need for it. Mm-hmm. So I may not, yes, I don't, uh, observe Kwanzaa, but I wouldn't spit on it because I understand it, uh, where it is, uh, where it is coming, it is coming from. Yeah. And so somebody who is not educated would just, Maybe from the continent, maybe like oh, they do this nonsense, this uh, bullshit. I understand it. I also understand the fact that if somebody decides to wear cowries from their head to their toe to show they're African, I may not do that. But there's something that.
1: um, But it still has meaning.
2: It has meaning. It has meaning, and you don't have to have grown in that uh, in that society, or you don't you don't have to know everything about that Ugandan culture to wear it. Growing up as African American, uh, just knowing that this is—it's—I don't even understand what that space can be. Um, one of uh, a staff member here approached me, and I was talking about—we're um, talking about ancestral stuff—and she got very teary-eyed. She says, "Joyce, you can talk about places and things; I can't, because of uh, slavery." But then I told her one thing. I said, but guess what? For, they said there's a silver lining for every cloud. But because of slavery, you may be fortunate to have some written history on that family than I have. I can't even go beyond my great grandfather. So if you follow, if you are lucky to f- follow your grandparents and stuff, because you came out here, you may have ancestry up to a certain point that I don't have. Yes, it links to slavery, but before that, you may have this historical records that I don't. Yeah. I I don't have. And she said, yes, you're right about that. That at least she can trace her family to great great grand. I say there you go. So you have that history that I don't have. Yes, I am from Cameroon, but because of uh, this history was not written down. In fact, it's um. I went to see my sister who just came to Canada, and I was fortunate uh, that she, because of me prodding and prodding, she had a, a meeting with my two surviving aunts who were able to give a family history. And honestly, on my dad's side, we went back as far as great, great grand on his father's father's side, on the mother's side, I think we went back like four generations and it ended. There. And when we say four generations, maybe it's just the name. Yeah. We can't even see things. My grandfather had sixteen wives. At least I'm happy that. Yet my dad said seventeen, my brother says my dad said eighteen, but <laughs> but the <laughs> but the, at my birthday really he in the U.S. he had said eighteen wives, but my sister. In that interview, the aunties could only remember sixteen. So, but at least they could give us the sixteen wives and each of the wives' children.
1: Well, that's incredible. That's
2: incredible. So that's how far we've uh, we've we've gone, gone. And this is—I'm giving you this is information that I just got. So, I when I meet African Americans, I try to give them this thing so that there's something to hold on to. We all got dispossessed, <laughs> you know, and. Um, but this identity, this shifting identity, and so here I am, but I still have my foothold in, 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 in Cameroon because the truth about identity is that inasmuch as I don't like the marginalization, but that's where I grew up. I stayed in Yaoundé for long. I'm still fond of the country, and um, it still defines me. Um, but right now I'm living... You live in a space, sometimes it's limbo. In America, they tell me I have an accent. I go to Cameroon, I also have an accent.
1: Well, I was actually going to ask you, <laughs> that's kind of the, you know, it's completing the circle. What, what does it feel like to go back? In fact, in, before you answer that question, could you read a poem from your book about travel titled Between Airports, which is published in your book, A Basket of Flaming Ashes.
2: Yes, this poem uh, definitely captures my feelings crossing those boundaries. Um, between airports, my goodbyes are broken pieces of me flung back, my welcome, a quilt of my fragmented self. In between are bundles of memories wrapped in papers, sealed in backs, labeled in doubt, Packed in fear. Limit fifty pounds per suitcase.
1: So, when you talk about this kind of fear, packing—is it the fear of the of hitting the weight limit, or is it the anxiety of uh, packing up all this stuff for the for the people back in Cameroon?
2: Both, because um, when you visit home, as in Cameroon, that's when your sense of Being a foreigner in the U.S. comes up because suddenly you're trying to take the whole country back. You know, (laughs) (laughs) everything, even uh, soda, pamplemousse, which is a drink that I don't drink soda here in the U.S., but I'm trying to bring soda across the border (laughs) because I grew up drinking pamplemousse and I like it. I want to bring pamplemousse. People bring gifts to to show that they care and you want to take their gifts along. There are some things that you want to bring back just for the heck of it, uh, maybe to put in your house and you look at it. In the scheme of things, do I really need that? But you do. It's part of your identity. So it's almost like I want pieces of my identity to take with me. And then you have this suitcase limit. That, and then that So there's the limit. Then there's also this invasion of who you are when you arrive because they're going through your stuff to see what you have brought in yeah most of these things are usually foodstuffs things that are edible but suddenly it's become like you're you're some alien yeah you know you have to start explaining yourself and so you're packing things they bring you Nice uh, melon seeds that have been made into pudding, a goosey pudding. If it was in Cameroon, everybody knows that this is food. Now you've been asked, what is this? Uh, Is there meat in there? And suddenly your food is being dissected as if it's some specimen in a lab. So that's where the fear comes from, is that are they going to identify this as something to be thrown away? So we try to find the English equivalents, the scientific names. Of these things to say, oh, I'm having colcasia, whatever, whatever, and now suddenly it looks like some. plant. I remember when I went to see my sister who is visiting in Canada. She had just come through that airport with the same stuff. Now I'm taking the stuff to the U- USA, <laughs> yeah. and I am stopped. What do you have there? And I said, uh, bitter leaf. Oh, bitter leaf was that? I had to go to Google to find the equivalent and I think it said iron weed or something like that and because of that I was pulled out and I had to wait at the immigration there for hours for them to go and put that through the machines Mm. to see and then of course they realized that it is harmless but in doing that they see melon seeds that have not been crushed oh we don't allow melon seeds that have not been crushed I said but this melon seeds came Mm. through this airport and they said well They came from which country? I said, Cameroon. Oh, we allow them to come in from Cameroon, but now you're taking them from Canada, we don't know, because we will not allow it if it's from Nigeria. I know that was just bullshit. And they kept me there for two hours. So that anxiety, so when you're packing from Cameroon, you know there's anxiety. And with that anxiety, your already fragmented self is fragmented further, more. more. Uh. And so that's why I said my goodbyes are broken uh uh, pieces of me flung back I I get to the airport and I don't know what food item is going to make it which is not going to make it that is the uh, feeling and then with all that anxiety you're packing you're also packing in a way that they can see that and believe that you're a respectable uh, person you know the way you, you package it we try to use uh, ziploc bags and stuff I don't want to Put it in some flimsy papers that you think, okay. But sometimes all that packaging to show that it's something to be respected
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: doesn't stop it. And then I arrive here. I said, uh, my welcome is a quilt of my fragmented self. I try to put myself together.
1: Back together again? Yes,
2: I'm back here. I need to survive. I need to live. Um, I need to learn to love this place. Yeah. It is home. And, uh, so I put myself together.
1: Well, we're we're actually glad that you're back here <laughs> and together. <laughs> Joyce Ashton Tenteng, thank you so much for talking with me today.
2: Well, thank you, thank you. And uh, it's been a pleasure. I haven't had this kind of conversation where I look at my my travels and what they've meant to me. And so, thank you. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity.
1: <laughs> That's it for today. The music was composed by Zabrat. Make sure you check out the Time to Eat the Dogs website for podcast links and other exploration related stuff. And if you get the chance, please take a minute to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps make the show visible to new listeners. And if you want to recommend a guest or make a comment, feel free to contact me at Time to Eat the Dogs. That's one word, lowercase at gmail.com See you next week.